Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. All right, what is going on, everyone? Casey Adams here. Welcome back to the Rise of the Young podcast. On today's podcast, we have Anthony Pompliano. Thanks so much for coming on, my man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So we've been in contact the past month or so now, and I know that you recently launched the Capital University podcast with Bryce Hall, but you have an extensive background, not only as an entrepreneur, but a technology investor. For those that may not know who you are and your background, I'd love for you to give just a high-level overview of what they should know. Yeah, it's pretty easy. Um, I was in the army for about six and a half years, did a deployment overseas uh, to Iraq, uh, came back, built and sold two software companies. Uh, I then went on to run a number of product and growth teams at Facebook and Snapchat, uh, and then started investing full-time in uh, 2016. Um, alongside the investing stuff, started to do a bunch of content as well. And so I kind of think of what I do now in two buckets. One is uh, just traditional early stage startup investing. Uh, and then the other is a entire content or digital media business. Love it, man. Yeah. You got a lot on your plate. So talking on the two SaaS companies, what were those in particular and what led you to the software business overall? Stupidity. Uh, I literally, I literally didn't know what I was doing. Okay. Uh, first, com- first company I started with, uh, with four friends, uh, or I'm sorry, three friends from high school. So four of us, and, uh, we pretty much did everything wrong. Like we didn't know what we were doing. Um, I always tell the story that like we worked with an outsourced, uh, development team yep. and, uh, used an agency paid way too much money for what got built. And I'll never forget the experience of, uh, we got back kind of one of the early mocks of what they were building yep. and we're like, Hey, how do people sign out of their account? And they're like, Oh, you didn't tell us to build that. So like, that'll be like another 500 bucks. And we were like, all right, this probably isn't like the best path. And yeah, so, yeah. Those early experiences, they weren't big companies, but they, they just were really informative and, and educational for me as I kind of got this like crash course. Uh, and then obviously when I went on to uh, Facebook and Snapchat, that was like that same experience on steroids of kind of, you know, trying to figure it out myself and then eventually working alongside people who really knew what they were doing. Um, and, and so I felt very fortunate to kind of have all of those different experiences because it really kind of put me in a position to be successful, um, you know, when I started investing. Yeah, totally. What were those two companies for those that may not know before you joined Facebook, Snapchat? Yeah. The first one was online advertising. So we basically figured out how to monetize the login page for parents and uh, students. So if you think of most public schools, they have some sort of portal where you can yep. go in, um, you know, check grades, assignments, whatever. Oh, and okay. uh, those pages actually have some of the most traffic on the internet, but none of them are monetized uh, because there's just, you know, in a school district, you may have thousands, if not tens of thousands of parents logging in like on a daily or, or multiple yep. times a day. Yeah. Uh, and the schools, they're not in the business of making money. So they're not going to go put banners 
banner ads or anything like that. We basically just put a link that said, you know, um, click on this link for a uh, local business directory that has deals for parents and students. And so, of course, bunch of traffic yep. gets siphoned off. They go click on it. And then we charge businesses. Um, I think it was like 15 bucks a month to basically list their business. So think of kind of like a Yelp like uh, yep. platform. Um, and uh, businesses loved it because it was a really low cost way to advertise to the parents and students of a local uh, um, school. And then the second business was in the social media analytics space. We basically, when all the APIs were wide open, uh, we would suck in all of the social media data and we created some technology that did uh, something we called identity stitching. So the whole idea is you actually differently on Facebook than you do on LinkedIn, than on Instagram and on Foursquare. But if I can start to stitch all of that information together, and I know that uh, that tweet you just sent out that doesn't have GPS coordinates on it uh, came three minutes after you checked into the local ice cream shop, right? Then I can start to put some context around that tweet. Um, And so we're able to work with everyone from sports teams to law enforcement, et cetera, with uh, with that one. Very cool, man. I had no idea about that, man. That's so sick. So what led you to, you build and sell those companies, what led you to investing and where did you initially start in the realm of investing into different companies? And I know you have, um, you know, 83,000 people that follow your email list on a daily basis now and you send out these messages and I follow you heavily on Twitter and I've learned a lot from you just following you the last couple months or so. But when did initially you get into the investing world and what led you to it? Yeah, so in 2014, I was working at Facebook, uh, and I had the fortunate opportunity to meet a couple of entrepreneurs that were either leaving Facebook as they started companies or entrepreneurs who uh, had started a company and they wanted to work with Facebook in some way. Uh, I didn't invest in any of them, which was like a really, really stupid mistake uh, in hindsight. Um, But that was my first kind of... um, you know, really kind of being thrust into the world of angel investing and technology investing. Uh, And so in 2016, I was thinking about, do I go start another business uh, or do I invest? And you know, the the truth of it is I just didn't have an idea that I felt passionate enough about to like go build another company. Um, And so it was like, well, let me just kind of invest some money uh, into these early stage startups and I'll see one, if I'm good at it and two, it'll buy me some time until I figure out like my own idea to go build. Uh, And I did that investing with uh, with a friend of mine, uh, Jason Williams, who had previously built uh, the second largest uh, chain of urgent care facilities in the United States. So he had wow. kind of spent almost you know 15 years building this really big business. Um, and so when we started investing, we quickly realized like, we actually had a very differentiated way of looking at it, uh, but founders really found that attractive. And so uh, we were living in Raleigh, North Carolina. We didn't meet any founders really in person. Majority of the founders we were just talking to over the phone or doing video calls with. Uh, we tried to make really fast decisions because uh, we were writing small checks. And yep. that first fund, uh, we ended up investing in just over 60 companies, if I remember correctly. And uh, in that fund alone, we're going to have a couple of companies where we're seed investors that end up being worth over a billion dollars. Wow. And so it, it was kind of this you know, really unique situation of uh, we're trying to figure out if we're good at it. Um, and, uh, and we were able to meet some great founders and they pretty much did all the hard work. And so uh, it was just double down on what, you know, I was already doing and here we are today. That is so cool, man. What were some of those companies that are now worth a billion dollars? Uh, I can't say the ones that no are necessarily worth a billion. Uh, <laughs> what, what I will though, is I'll, I'll give a, examples of a couple of companies that are in the, uh, um, in the fund. So one of the companies that's really interesting is this company, uh, Imperfect Foods. Uh, it was called Imperfect Produce yeah. at the time. Basically they go to local farms, they buy fruit or produce that is, uh, ugly. 
right? So literally it's an apple, but it's lopsided. Uh-huh. Um, about 20% of all produce uh, gets thrown away because they can't sell it in the grocery store because literally it's ugly. Yep. So they would go, they would buy it at a massive discount, let's say maybe 80% discount. They would then bring it to a warehouse, package it up into a subscription box and then deliver it right to your door. You as the end consumer might pay 50% less than you would at the grocery store. So if you're just cooking with yep. the tomato, you don't care if the tomato looks ugly as long as it's you know healthy and, and still good. And you also feel like you're kind of doing good in the world because you're helping save some of this food that would have gotten thrown out otherwise. Yep. So that business has gone really well. They've now transitioned to like a full-on online grocery store. Um, and so during COVID, obviously, it's gone very well for them. Yep. Uh, another business in that portfolio was a company called Everly Wellness. Um, they basically started out doing at-home diagnostic testing. So everything from food sensitivity tests to um, you know, glucose or, or whatever it is. Um, and that founder, a woman named uh, Julia Cheek, uh, she was a Harvard graduate, uh, You know, really kind of just put her head down and, and built an amazing business. Uh, they were one of the first businesses to get approved for an at-home COVID wow. test. Um, and so that business has you know, absolutely exploded. Uh, but then there was other types of businesses in there that uh, were much more kind of moonshot type ideas. So we invested in a business that uh, would literally uh, was working on how to freeze the human brain uh, so that they could preserve the electrical connections. Um, and the idea was uh, the founder had won some awards for being able to do this on a very small scale. I think it was like a rabbit spray brain. So he could literally cryogenically freeze a brain, keep 100% structural integrity. And the idea was if I can freeze the electrical connections, eventually what I can do is like download that to a computer. Now, the probability of that being successful is like less than 1%. But if he can do that, it would be a grand slam from a financial return perspective. And so there were some of those kind of moonshots in there as well. Got it. So you and your partner, you started the fund in North Carolina and it was just you and him to begin with? It was. Got it. What, what would you say was the early stages of that fund? How are you guys vetting companies? What were some of the companies you guys were looking at? And what did you learn from starting a fund so far? Yeah. So, you know, at this point we manage a number of different funds, um, have kind of invested the entire spectrum. So everything from writing, you know, $25,000 check into a company all the way up to, I think the biggest check we've ever written is $30 million, um, in, in a single investment. And what you begin to understand is like, it doesn't matter at what stage you're actually investing in a company. Ultimately you're investing in people, right? You're investing in that founder and that founder needs to have uh, a specific, uh, skill set. Uh, but more importantly, they need to have the determination not to give up. Like most of the companies that we've seen fail, it's literally the founders at some point just give up. And sometimes them giving up is smart because the business isn't working. It's not scalable, whatever. But most of the time we don't yet know, is this business actually going to fail or not? The the founders just get frustrated and they give up. And so I always try to remember like rule number one, you're investing in a person. Make sure this is a person that you believe can kind of navigate all the obstacles moving forward. Um, And it's somebody that you want to look forward to like taking their calls, right? The worst thing is if you invest and then people need your help and they're calling you and you're like, oh my God, I have to get on the phone again, right? <laughs> so it, it's uh, very much um, you know, investing in people and also founders taking money. Like you're taking money from people as well. And so you want to yep. make sure the investor you're taking money from is somebody you want to talk to. Uh, the second thing I think is uh, most of the rules in venture capital uh, at least historically didn't make a lot of sense in today's day and age. So things like uh, I need to be the founder in person. Like we did a bunch of investing, never met anybody in person, worked out, yep. 
pretty well. Um, you know, you have to be in Silicon Valley to build a really successful company. Sure, that that helps in some cases, but you know, Everly Wellness it was based in Austin, Texas, right? We invested back in I think 2016, 2017, uh, before it was kind of cool to move to Austin. Um, and, and so I think that you know, just questioning a lot of these assumptions, and thankfully we didn't have the classical training of having you know been a associate at a traditional venture capital fund or anything like that. Uh, and the last thing I would say is uh, really walking before you run, and that's like a very cliche piece of advice. But when it came to investing, I'm very, very thankful that we didn't have like a very big fund to go invest in on day one, right? Our initial yep. fund was just a couple million dollars and we were writing kind of 50 to $100,000 checks. Sounds like a lot of money to most people, but in the venture capital world, that's like nothing, right? Yeah. And so what it allowed us to do was almost like get reps in on a small scale. So then when we started to deploy much more money, you know, we, we kind of had that experience uh, under our belt and, and we were just much better investors, I think, um, due to that experience. I love that. How much time do you spend on the fund and looking at companies and investing in companies nowadays? Uh, so a hundred percent of my time is spent on quote unquote, what I do. I think of the content and the investing as pretty much the same thing, right? If you kind of think of like how I spend my day, I pretty much spend all day long talking to as many interesting people as I possibly can. And to me, the fact that that's like a job is comical (laughs) because that's just like, you know, literally a dream scenario. Uh, Sometimes that, you know, shows itself or applies itself in, I'm recording a podcast episode. Uh, Other times I'm going on other people's podcasts. Uh, And then other times is I'm talking to a founder about potentially investing. But that's kind of my, my guiding light, right? It's just find the most interesting people in the world. And by doing that, that takes up 100% of my time. And then it kind of filters into, is it a content thing or an investing thing? Yep. When did you start putting out content? I know some of your interviews on YouTube have over a million views and you have this large newsletter. When did you start going hard on building a brand, putting out content? Because you're already busy investing in different companies. So what made you transition into going hard with content as well? Yeah, so in 2014, I ran um, the growth team for Facebook Page. I was the product manager um, for that team. And I had the uh, you know great fortune to meet a lot of really, really interesting people, whether they were celebrities, they were people who managed celebrities, uh, or they were brands themselves. So you know, I met like the guys who run the Fuck Jerry Instagram network uh, very early on, et cetera. And what I was able to do was kind of help them understand, here's what you should be doing with the Facebook uh, part of your business, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm unaware of what you do elsewhere, but with yep. Facebook pages, I can really help you kind of skill your brand. And so through that, I learned a lot from them just as much as they learned from me. Um, And when I got to 2017, what I realized kind of the beginning of 17, I'd never built it myself. Right. And so when I, when I started to think about it, I was like, in having an audience is going to be one of the most important things in the future. It's kind of this new currency, right? Um, And so I need to do this for myself. So I started on Twitter in 2017. I just put my head down for about 18 months and just focused on Twitter. Uh, The first 12 months, I went from like two or 3,000 followers that I already had to about 100,000. And then in May of 18, I started writing the email. Uh, I started the email specifically to de-risk the platform risk of only having a Twitter account. I was like, hey, I need to have a different platform that I can talk directly to people if I ever lose my Twitter account. In August of 18, I started a podcast. Uh, I've talked about it a million times, but like basically as a joke, uh, somebody asked me <laughs> to do it and I was like, sure, I'll record a couple, but like I don't even know how to record a podcast. Yep. Um, and it went well and I just kind of kept doing it. And then I pretty much focused on those three things, Twitter, email, and podcast until January of 2020. And then I said, okay, look, I'm ready to add another platform, uh, which was YouTube. Um, and the goal for this year was to go from about, I don't know, three, 4,000 subscribers, whatever we had to a hundred thousand. Um, you know, we're recording this right now and I think I've got uh, just under 120,000. So yep. I was able to, uh, to kind of really figure it out and, uh, and then I'll just kind of keep focusing on those four platforms until I decide to add something new. 
Love that. When it comes to the podcast, with interviewing people, what have you learned from some of these interviews and how do you correlate those relationships to business? I know for me, the podcast has been great with networking and meeting people and it opens up every door in my life. But how do you think about podcasting, the future of the industry, and how do you personally navigate it? Yeah, for me, the number one thing is just be selfish. And that sounds like really, really bad advice. But the reason why I say be selfish is when I go into an interview, I literally just ask the questions that I want to know. And naturally, I think that the audience ends up being similar to me, right? They want to know the same types of things. And so I'm just like super selfish about if I walk away from the conversation and saying, I learned a lot, that was really interesting to me, that I'm kind of doing right by the audience. Um, So so that's kind of one big focus. Uh, Two is um, I'm always blown away by, the types of people that are willing to come on the podcast. And so I really focus on um, being able to grow it as as big as possible because it provides more value to the guest, right? If a guest goes on a podcast that gets 5,000 downloads versus half a million downloads, of course, it's more valuable for them to go on the the bigger one. Um, And so I kind of think of like all the growth stuff that I do as that's the value I'm providing to the guest, the actual episode recording, that's the value that I'm driving for the audience. So you're kind of playing this like marketplace game. Uh, And the last piece on the podcast is uh, it's forced me to really focus on uh, kind of operating again, right? Everything yep. from the, the products, right? So the actual, how are we recording this? Is it audio? Is it video? Where are we putting right. it? How are we cutting it? All that kind of stuff to also the operational stuff internally of, you know, the team and, and um, you know, managing people and uh, paying attention to the finances and, and all of that type of stuff. So it kind of scratches the operational itch without yep. actually having to, you know, go raise a bunch of outside capital and feel like, hey, I'm doing a startup again yeah. uh, because that's, uh, you know, you better be prepared for what you're signing up for if you want to go do that because that, that can be uh, can be pretty tough. Totally. I, I love that too. And I know that one of the things you said is being selfish on your interview with um, billionaire Shamath Palihapitiya. Is that how you say it? That's right. First question right off the gate, you said, when, when was the moment you knew you were a billionaire? And when I was listening to that, I was like, this is what people want to hear. It's like that type of brutal bluntness is what gets the ball rolling, you know? So with that being said, some of these interviews in your relationships, what would your advice be to people that are starting up, starting their first company when it comes to networking, raising capital and getting inside of that ecosystem that you've already been through. And now on the flip side, you're now investing into just to summarize it. What's your advice to young entrepreneurs today that are going to raise capital and grow their network? Yeah, I think one of the biggest lies um, or, or misleading kind of thought process is that you have to have a network to, able, to be able to raise money and do all this stuff, right? Uh, does it help? Absolutely, right? So I wanna be clear that like having a network, knowing people can absolutely be beneficial to you. But I, I do think that it's underestimated how effective you can be. If you build something and it's working and yep. you have to email somebody, if you cold email uh, somebody with literally two or three sentences and you say, hey, I've built X, it's growing at this rate month over month, uh, I'm raising $2 million and I'd love to talk to you about it. Like most investors are not idiots, right? If you explain uh-huh. to them like, hey, I built this thing, it's in a space that they find interesting and you're able to show some sort of traction or data point that like, hey, people want this uh, and it's growing, they will respond. And so uh, it helps to have a network, but I do think that the, the biggest thing you can do is just focus on building something that actually works. Um, yep. And in today's day and age, it doesn't take as much money. You don't need as many people as you you know even needed five, 10 years ago. Um, and, and so I think that's kind of step one. The second thing is being very smart about not just raising money to raise money. Like that's one of the other mistakes I see happen a lot is people think that it's like a, a badge of honor or it's a milestone to have raised money. Sure, but I do think if we change the narrative and we said, hey, uh, you, you're selling part of your business. 
right? Because that's what yep. you're doing. You're selling yep. some of the equity in your business. People may not celebrate it as much, right? Like if you can build the same business, you know, let's say you build a $20 million business, right? Yep. And you can raise a ton of money or raise no money. Most people would elect to raise no money, right? And, and yep. so it, it really does depend on what you're trying to build, how scalable it is. Um, should you go raise money? Who should you raise it from? What are the terms? All that kind of stuff. But I, I think that getting out of this world of just like uh, ce- celebratizing, uh, raising capital uh, would be much more healthier for founders. Um, and, and just remember, like you're selling a piece of your business. And the reason why an investor is buying that piece of your business is because they think that piece is going to be worth more in the future than it is today. So you're literally giving up upside in order to raise that capital. Sometimes that makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't. You just got to be smart about it. Totally. I I do want to start talking about something that I know you're an evangelist on, which is Bitcoin. It's been going crazy recently. It's all in the news. And I know that you recently had the Winklevoss twins on the Capital University podcast. But when did you get involved with Bitcoin? How did you initially hear about it? And what's your predictions on the future of Bitcoin? Yeah, so um, kind of... 2016, I think, uh, I heard about it in 2014. I did nothing uh, when I was at Facebook. You know, again, stupid mistake. Uh, in 2016, um, I had a, a kid that I'd previously met. He was actually a high schooler when I met him. Uh, he was now a freshman, I think, in college. He basically sat me down and he was like, hey, you got to pay attention to this thing. He didn't pitch me on Bitcoin. What he pitched me on was cryptocurrency mining. So this whole idea of you buy a computer, you plug it in, and it basically generates cash flow. Right. And so uh, my father had grown up and spent a bunch of time in the data center business. I understood that business pretty well. When I saw mining, it was data centers on steroids. Uh, and I said, look, cool, I'll take some money and I'll basically try it. One of the best things I've done in my life is always when I see something that's interesting, I want to play with it. I want to try it. I just, you know, it, it might be yep. small first, but like, let, let me get hands-on experience with it. Um, so did that very quickly was like, oh my God, this is going to be massive. Uh, and I became pretty convinced that like the entire industry would be uh, worth paying attention to. Over then like a six month period, I went from, hey, this is going to be interesting to then I basically said, I'm going to double and triple down on this to the point where I'm only going to focus on this for some period of time. And so really for the last like two and a half years or so, all I've done is just focus on it. Um, I've got a very strong uh, kind of conviction thesis around it. Um, and and, you know, one of the great investing lessons I've learned over time uh, is concentration builds wealth and diversification protects it. And I think that we've constantly told people over and over and over again, diversify, diversify, diversify. Yep. What I actually think people need to do is you need to diversify your income streams, but on the investing side, you need to concentrate your investments, right? If you're managing a stock portfolio and you have 50 stocks, you don't have 50 good ideas, yeah. right? That just means you, you frankly haven't done the work to have high conviction around five or 10 ideas. Yep. And so I think that that's one of the key pieces is um, I really kind of had the conviction to uh, make a big move. And so, um, you know, it's public knowledge now, but in December of 2018, I took 50% of my net worth, uh, put it into Bitcoin at the bottom of the market. Um, obviously, you know, when you're buying at sub $3,500 and now it's, you know, trading at sixteen, seventeen $17,000, pretty good. Uh, but the second investing lesson I've learned is uh, the best investors in the world, they press their winners harder than anybody, right? So they cut their losses faster than anybody, but they also press their winners harder. And so even though I kind of made that investment decision and it's played out well, I've continued to uh, kind of double and triple down on that investment uh, as it continued to rise. You know, I'm still buying Bitcoin, um, you know, in in the modern um, environment. And the reason being that if you liked it at 3,500 and you liked it at 5,000 and 10,000 and 15,000, well, if you have this long-term conviction, you frankly don't care what price you're buying. Right? You're essentially yeah. just dollar cost averaging into an asset where you've got high conviction. And if you hold it for a long period of time, it should play out well if you're right. And so that's kind of the uh, investment thesis I've had with Bitcoin. Love that. What do you think is 
all the hype right now, the last three months or two months or so, and it's, you know, it was at 10,000. Now it's the last week or two weeks. And now it's at 17,000. What has caused that? And what should potential investors know about this time when it comes to Bitcoin? It's really hard to pinpoint one thing, right? I always talk about Bitcoin in this um, kind of weird way of, if you imagine everyone in the world is on like a spectrum and some people are like all in, they're highly convicted like me and, and basically they're, they've already crossed the finish line, if you will, yep. right? And then there's some people who like never even heard of Bitcoin and they're on the far end of the other spectrum. Well, every time one of these events or data points happens, everyone just kind of takes a step to the right. Right. So, okay. Paul Tudor Jones wants to buy Bitcoin. Okay. Everyone takes a step to the right. So if you had never heard of it, maybe now you've heard of it. If you had just heard about it, now you start doing educational research, right? If you've done educational research, maybe you come convinced, Hey, I should actually buy some. Maybe you, Hey, I should buy some. Now you actually go and do it. Right. So everyone kind of takes a step to the right. Fidelity step to the right. Yep. This company, MicroStrategy or Square, they buy Bitcoin and put it on their balance sheet. Everyone steps to the right. And so every data point kind of just moves people along in, in the funnel. Um, what I think is happening right now on a macro basis is it's really simple. The government is printing lots and lots of money. Uh, and so people are looking for inflation hedge assets. Um, they ran to Bitcoin, gold, real estate, et cetera, over uh, kind of this pandemic. And at the same time that that occurred, the Bitcoin incoming daily supply got cut in half. So every four years, basically, there's this programmatic thing that happens where um, Bitcoin gets cut uh, by 50%. And so Bitcoin, at the end of last year, there was 1,800 Bitcoin a day that was coming into the circulating supply. Today, there's 900. So you have a supply shock. At the same time, demand is increasing. And so economics 101, if you have a fixed supply asset and demand increases, the US dollar price is going to go up, right? And so I think that it's um, you know pretty obvious kind of structurally why it's happening. The big debate is what happens in the future? Does demand yeah. continue to increase? Does it just kind of plateau? Does it decrease, right? Everyone's got their own opinion, but ultimately the market will, uh, will figure that one out. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. What is your high level advice when it comes to your investment strategy and how you vet companies and diversify, not diversify, because I know that you said it's about focused attention, but what's your advice to young investors that want to get involved with whether that's starting a fund or um, just getting involved in different asset classes, like what from a high level, what do you suggest? Yeah. So I'll give you kind of the life advice that I usually tell people and, yep. and uh, advice is a strong word. Cause I actually think it's really hard to give people advice as much as like, these are like the financial rules that I think everyone should live <laughs> totally. by. Uh, the, the first one is just spend less than you make wild concept. But literally if you make, you know, $5,000 a month, you should spend less than $5,000 a month. Yep. Uh, the second is get out of debt and literally do anything and everything possible to get out of debt as soon as possible. Um, because ultimately that's just going to kind of hold you back. Um, the third is you've got to have more multiple revenue sources or income streams, right? So whether that is you've got a job, you've got investments, you've got uh, you know, real estate, whatever it is, you got to have multiple revenue streams uh, in order to uh, just increase your earning potential. Uh, the fourth thing that you've got to do is you've got to invest that right? So once you save whatever the amount of money you think you need to save, whether it's a month, three months, six months worth of uh, kind of expenses, whatever that number is, once you save, invest everything else, right? That's how you grow your wealth is investing, not saving. Uh, and then the last uh, rule or kind of rule number five is just, you got to be super disciplined and patient. Like none of this is rocket science, right? Those five yep. things I just told you, there are literally thousands of books that have all said that there have been yep. everybody in their mom on YouTube has said that, but 
it's timeless advice for a reason, right? It works um, yep. and it's not sexy, but if you're disciplined and patient and you have a good plan, you every single person should become a millionaire. I don't care if you literally make $10 an hour through the lifetime of your career. If you make the right decisions, you will become a millionaire. It's just, you got to have the discipline to do it. Yep. When did that discipline become relevant in your life? Was it something that you learned in college early on? Or when did you actually start to apply that? Because like you said, you can listen to it all day, but when was that moment for you where you actually got serious and shifted gears and started actually getting serious about this? I'm a 32-year-old guy who probably had the same trajectory of most people, which means that uh, after I came back from uh, the military, I had made a little bit of money. And uh, I, you know what I did? Everybody else, I'm going to go get rich quick. And yeah. so I started doing foreign currency trading in college while sitting in class. Like, again, really yep. stupid. Uh, I got very, very fortunate in that I turned, I think it was like $9,000 I, I put in to start with uh, into 72. And I thought I was going to be the next Steve Cohen. This is going to be amazing. I'm going to go trade my way to be a billionaire. And then I started getting cocky and I started trading on my phone when I was doing a summer internship and I lost about half of the money. Okay. <laughs> right. And so I was still up, but you know, losing tens of thousands of dollars was, uh, was not a fun experience yep. um, in terms of the, uh, the portfolio. And so I very quickly realized like, Hey, I'm not a good trader, right? I basically just kind of got uh, fortunate in the timing that I went ahead and, and put money into the market, uh, I probably should go find more sustainable things. And so that experience was really eye-opening to me of like, you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You basically just don't have to be an idiot. And yeah. me being, trading foreign currencies was being an idiot. And so, uh -huh. you know, let me kind of cut my losses and, and, uh, and move on. Um, and so what that ultimately led me to was where do I feel like I have an advantage? And so I started reading as much as I possibly could, right? I read pretty much every book or profile or watched every interview on YouTube I possibly could find on the smartest investors in the world or the smartest entrepreneurs. And every single one of them said the same thing. Like concentration builds wealth and I only want to operate in places where I'm either competent or I have an advantage. Nope. So like for me, I own zero public equities, right? Other than in my retirement account, basically I own a stock that gives me exposure to Bitcoin. Right. Yeah. Other than that, I own no public equities. Why? I don't understand it well enough. I have no advantage there. Uh, and it's not my focus. So why yeah. am I going to just hold stocks because some people think you should hold stocks? No, I'm going to go spend my time on the things that I think I have an advantage and I've got competence around. And so I think that's a really key lesson for people is like, don't try to do everything or do what somebody else is doing. Like find the thing that you enjoy and you have an advantage uh, and then double and triple down on that. And what you'll start to figure out is like, if your advantage is literally in trading like uh, timber, then go be a great timber trader, right? Yeah. I don't even know how to buy timber, but I, <laughs> there's people out there who are really good at it, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so that, that applies to every single asset class. Uh, but, but I just think that like being interested in investing and understanding, like making your money work for you is one of the highest leverage things you can do uh, if you do it intelligently. Um, and, and so there's no reason not to do it uh, unless you literally have zero knowledge, then you should spend your time investing in yourself and actually educating yourself before you start investing. Yep. I love that. What are you most looking forward to over the next 12 months with everything that you have going on in your life? Uh, Bitcoin is going to be uh, something to behold. I think it, it is going to go on this breathtaking run um, through the end of next year. Uh, you know, in history of the asset, uh, it's about 10, or 11, 12 years old now. Uh, it's basically had a couple of these really big boom cycles and then yep. massive crashes. Uh, so it'll go up, you know, 
10, 15, 20, 25 X, uh, in price at a very short period of time. And then it'll have this like nasty 80 plus percent correction. Uh, historically, I yep. think, you know, again, it's always hard to tell how high it will go, but I do think that from a macro and structural perspective, like we're headed into one of those very significant price increases through the end of next year. Uh, and then there will be a, a really nasty price decline, but that's been my main focus for the last two years is kind of preparing for this. Yep. Um, and, and so I think a lot about like, you kind of want to see, uh, the thesis through, um, um, and, and so uh, we, we got about 12 months left here and uh, I think it'll be pretty cool to watch. Hey, that's exciting, man. Well, Anthony, last thing before I let you go, where is the best place where people can stay in touch with everything that you have going on and get involved with your newsletter and everything? Yeah, if you want the kind of day-to-day thoughts, I would just go to Twitter, uh, just yep. at A Pompliano. And then uh, if you want more of like the finance and business analysis, uh, it's just pompletter.com. Cool, well, Anthony, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Casey.